and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today we're over the moon to be talking to Jens Kurd Madsen, who is a cognitive psychologist at the London School of Economics, who's interested in misinformation and complex human environment systems. He's really focused on how people change their beliefs and how they act in social networks. In 2018, Jens did the most extraordinary experiment, which seems to confirm or seem to confirm some of our worst um, fears about the ways that social network manipulate humans into echo chambers, radicalize their opinions and help polarize them. That's what we want to unpick today and then follow up looking at the subsequent work that Jens has done around the world, that, the role that media can have inside these social network ecosystems. So Jens, tell us about large networks of rational agents. Tell us about this experiment. Yeah, and uh, thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I'm really honored to have been invited. Um, well, I mean, fundamentally, it came down to um, a question that sort of sprung into my mind in December 2017. I was listening to Mark Zuckerberg talk about um, the, the benefits of social networks and social media. You've heard it so many times, uh, especially from people who are developing uh, social media, which is like, all, all we need to do is connect people. Uh, like the more we can bring together people and the more people we can bring together, uh, the more like the, the sort of classic marketplace of ideas, the bad ideas will float to the bottom, the good ideas will rise to the top. And it's sort of like this classic idea that we've we've heard it so many times, um, parroted to us uh, way back when from like enlightenment philosophy um, and sort of like the foundations of deliberative democracy all the way up to now um, Silicon Valley tech people. A thought struck me. That's a really nice assumption. And it's a really nice sort of intuitive prediction. But does it actually hold? So we were interested in testing this fundamentally, whether or not increasing the scale of the network is uh, helpful in decreasing the amount of echo chamber and polarization that we're seeing. So, so the key thesis here of Zuckerberg's is the more people we can put into these systems, the faster we will process the bad ideas out. Yeah. The faster we'll accelerate towards the truth. And that's what you were testing. Yeah, exactly. So we built this, um, this big model uh, of a simulation of a social network. And we put in uh, to this model different components. We put in some agents uh, who are optimally rational. So they integrate information in a totally rational way. They are completely honest, so they will always say exactly what they think about the world. Uh, they're 100% trusting, so they will always trust 100% what everyone else is telling them, which incidentally is a good thing in a world where everyone is 100% honest. Um, and they're quite open-minded. So they're willing to engage with anyone within, uh, say, 95% of the, the, what they consider to be um, a, a possible reality. So they're really super open-minded, they're totally rational, totally trusting, and totally honest, and they have complete perfect memory. So they can remember everything they've ever seen in, in their lifetimes. 
the ideal citizen in the, the West. Ideal citizen. We 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 thought that we would put the best possible idealized citizen into this network because we wanted to avoid um, baking in some results where um, like we just put in a bunch of bigoted people and then look they became bigoted once they were in a social media network. We wanted to really have like a, a cl as clean a test as possible of this idea of the marketplace of ideas. So we implemented these uh, idealized citizens in a social network structure. And all we did was then to allow them to sample a bit of information on their own uh, to begin with. Um, and then uh, from, from a Gaussian distribution, a normal distribution. And then all we did was to let them talk to each other. So each agent could talk and say like, oh, I've seen this. Uh, and they could send that information to the other agent who would then integrate it in an optimally rational, perfect way. Um, and then they would update their beliefs. And then the next time that agent talks to another agent, then that agent would then say to the new agent, oh, I've seen this and this and this. Um, and so the whole bunch of evidence that they've seen throughout their lifetime. So uh, the only manipulation then that we wanted to uh, do to test uh, this theory that uh, the more we put people together, like the more people we put together, the, the better it becomes, is we manipulated the extent to which the agent had access to different um, uh, amounts of this network. So for instance, in one experiment, um, each agent could talk to 5% of the total network. Um, in another simulation, they could talk to 10%, 50%, and then 100% of the network. Of course, if, um, if the theory is correct, uh, the marketplace of ideas and this theory that connecting people is gonna increase, uh, like help this problem, then as we increase the size of how many people you can talk to in that network, it should uh, bring more and more people together into like the middle. And a I should- Consensus about the ideas which are correct. In yeah, and I, and I should say yeah. for, for, the, for the absolute sort of uh, perfect uh, scenario here, we also implemented an objective truth uh, into the model, which the agents had to find. So there is actually a truth out there in this model simulation, which the agents were trying to find. So basically the more people in our simulation who were close to that truth, like to that uh, true statement, the better the agents could have said to like effectively find the right solution or the right idea. So does it bring everybody with us as Zuckerberg or as John Stuart Mill or as many other people have suggested? And exactly. the results were not as nice as we would have liked. No, unfortunately not. Um, so this was this was kind of what surprised us a bit when we when we ran these simulations. I should say that like uh, there's one component that I haven't mentioned yet, which is if you are uh, two or more standard deviations away from what you each agent thinks is the right world, then they will sever contact with that person. So basically, if you meet someone in the in the social network and you think like they say like oh the moon is made of cheese, you go like okay this is beyond the pale for what I could consider to be even reasonably rational or possible. So in that case, they won't engage with that person. So those are the only mechanisms that we had in. And like, indeed, as you say, the results weren't as promising as, as uh, uh, John Stuart Mill et al. would have wanted them to be. So we found that the more we increased the, the connectivity of people, the more people got stuck in extreme positions and echo chambers on the extreme like edges of the belief structures. And this is not only, so not only did we not find a positive effect of, um, of increasing the network connectivity, not only did we not find like no effect, we found a negative effect. 
such that the bigger we made the network, the worse this problem became. And you can think of this in a way um, as like imagine that you had like um, like three people in in uh, in rural Britain, um, and one is a socialist, one is a social democrat, and one is a communist. And like if they're in a tiny little town, they can only talk to themselves if they want to have like a left wing political club. So they can have to come together in this little club. But now imagine that you take those three people and you take them into a big town like Manchester. Uh, all of a sudden, there's a social democratic society, there's a socialist society, and there's a communist society, which each of these people can now self-segregate into um, and self-purify into something that becomes extremely confident about their ideological positions. Now take that communist, shove him into London, and all of a sudden, not only do you have a communist society, you have like all these variations of communist societies, like Trotsky, Leninist. Like Leninist. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So what we're showing in a sense, is that the greater we make the network, the more people we include, naturally by 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 virtue of that, the, the greater diversity of the opinion uh, you also include, and the more options you give for the agents to just talk to the people with whom they already agree, and further sort of become increasingly confident that their version of reality is the right one. And that's fundamentally contradictory to, I think, at least in that way, the interpretation of the marketplace of ideas and the sort of foundational principles of this connectivity that is foundational both for deliberative democracies and for um, for social media networks um, as they've been conceived. Jens, this is fascinating, obviously. What you're demonstrating here is this extraordinary phenomenon that social networks, the larger the social network, the more likely they are to lead to polarization because people will be able to find their tribes to the very smallest degree. Um, there's one way of understanding that, which is to say that this is a, a spectacular a breeding ground for new ideas and to go really deep into those new ideas that on some level for the marketplace is a great thing but the mm. key piece that you show is that actually when people get stuck into those little bubbles these echo chambers as you described them they stay there and they radicalize inside them yes so there's there's some good and bad news in that way because as you say on the good news like one of the things that i think is so tremendously exciting about these types of models is that they allow us to test these fundamental theories and like and build better structures that exactly are trying to like adhere to the marketplace of ideas. It might not be that connectivity is the answer, but it may be that we need to think creatively about how we design these structures. Um, but as you say, like the negative thing about this is that once you allow people to have this self-organizing principles in their social media structures, we see increased echo chamber formation and like polarized, like extremist positions that are bubbling up in this network. Um, and you can just like, it's so easy to think about like how this plays out in real life with the intellectual dark web, with QAnon, like it's some, no one ever sort of starts in that extreme. They're sort of like gently pushed into it uh, through their connectivity and through uh, algorithms that are suggesting content for them that might be um, like keeping them online on, and on that those platforms. So like to understand like explicitly how these networks can self-organize and how people can deviate and, and trail along little path dependent um, like uh, tracks, um, which can lead to either extremism or to like a more convergence in the middle. I think it's incredibly important to understand these structures uh, fundamentally and not just from sort of a principle of like intuitive um, enlightenment philosophy. That makes sense. But so two, two things to tease out of this. The first is that um, even with ID, the, there is no difference between the people who end up in these peculiar 
radicalized echo chambers and everyone else. So that's the first point to make. Yeah. So that your no, you know, great uncle Joe, who's joined QAnon, is just as is just as likely to be like you cognitively um, as not. That's one. At, and the second, at least at least in this model. Um, so obviously, we're not saying that there's no differences between people in real life. We're just saying that the, you don't need a special source to uh, be stuck in these echo chambers and these extreme positions. Exactly. And that talks to this second fundamental point, which is that, um, and it's a point that you've made elsewhere, which is that we focus on fake news and misinformation and polarization um, and the role of politics in sorting us into our various different camps, et cetera, et cetera. We think about victims. And actually, we never really think about the actual architecture of the networks themselves as being systemically designed or systemically incapable of, uh, of anything other than this sort of radicalization on the fringes. Yeah, no, exactly. And like, I think uh, like in order to really get to grips with um, de-radicalizing people and understanding the deleterious effects that disinformation can have, like we cannot just focus exclusively on flagging uh, like disinformation and on teaching citizens how to critically evaluate data. I think we have to fundamentally think about like systemic properties of how these algorithms are self-selecting and curating the newsfeed for people as well as like the capacity for sharing um, like disinformation that have been brought um, to to everyone. So I think like the, you're entirely right in saying that like the focus has been a lot on like the fake news itself, like the content itself or the citizens um, and their inabilities to sort of pick up on fake news or whatever. And this is not to say that those things aren't important, but there is like this third component, which is the structure of the information system itself. Um, and it has fundamentally flipped uh, in the last couple of decades uh, with the introduction of social media. It's gone from a traditionally top-down uh, mass media communication model, which like in the last, like since Gutenberg's press and since the invention of paper, it's just been like an increase in top-down uh, capacity to reach larger and larger audiences. But like think about like who had access to paper, who had access to printing press, who had access to radio, TV. It was always a self-selected like little group of people who are either literate or who had access to these media conglomerates and who could push their agendas. So in that way, it was a great democratizer once the social media companies came in and said like, no, 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 hang on, everyone can contribute now. But the big challenge, at least from an information uh, theoretical perspective, is that that fundamentally changed um, a system from being like a top-down to being a top-down and a bottom-up information system where information flows in radically different ways. And I think we haven't caught up in our theoretical uh, understanding and appreciation of what that means. And this is why, like, so the, the model simulations that uh, I and my colleagues have been making and, and many other colleagues uh, around the world are making as well, um, is an attempt now to try and use more sort of sophisticated computational computer simulations to really understand, like, what is it? And like, what is the impact of like these structures? And what are, what are the impacts of these cognitive and social psychological um, like under ideas and assumptions in conjunction with uh, these uh, al uh, structures and algorithms, not as an isolation from it, but in conjunction with it and interplay between them. So, so, so yes, we talk about misinformation and bad actors and um, we also talk about the design of these social networks. Now, Tristan Harris, which I'll link to in the show notes, has written a lot about the ethics of attention mongering and the like button and what that does on Twitter and Facebook elsewhere. All of this, we're talking in a sense to the details of these social networks, but what your, your model looks at is the very function of them and how they 
contribute to the polarization. So that's experiment one. Fascinating, slightly heartbreaking, um, but it gives us the basis from which to uh, from which to look at how to fix things, possibly. And one of the things that you then subsequently done, I think it was in 2020, was another experiment where you looked at how you dropped, take the same model and drop a broadcaster into the middle of it. So not just a network of the Twittering masses, but you take a big BBC or a uh, or, or an NPR or a, whatever it might be, drop it into the middle with authority. What does old-fashioned media do inside a social network? Yeah, so we've been looking at this in two different ways. So the first reason why we wanted to drop a broadcaster in was to see if we could break the echo chamber effect by essentially um, giving like a clear signal to all the agents in the model um, at a certain frequency about the true state of the world. So the first broadcaster we ever plunked into this model was simply put every uh, five interactions, instead of interacting with someone within the network, they just got broadcast a, a message. Every single agent got broadcast a message with the true state of the system. Um, so like um, like just the, the truth. Um, and they integrated it in the exact same way that they would integrate any other evidence from any other person. So we thought like, okay, like having 20% of their interactions being literally with the truth, um, we thought like, okay, this surely must break these, broad, uh, these echo chambers. But it didn't. Um, so it just goes to show like how unbelievably resilient these findings are in the model. Um, that despite 20% of their interactions being with literally the truth, uh, we still found agents who uh, got stuck in extreme positions. So that was the first like little foray into broadcasters. And the second one, uh, we thought like, okay, like instead of just using this as an intervention to see how we can sort of squish the echo chamber in towards the middle and in towards the truth, um, why don't we have competing broadcasters and see what media landscapes would do to the population? So what we could manipulate with now is how frequently broadcasters would engage with the, with the people, who they could engage with as well, but also what they said and their media strategies. So just to give you one example, we put into the model two broadcasters, so two competing broadcasters. Uh, one broadcaster we conceptualized as a partisan disinformer. So they would constantly say something that was wrong um, and just like blast it out, like bam, 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 bam. Constantly just say something that's wrong. And the other one we conceptualized as a populist news channel that just reflected what is the majoritarian belief and we'll just we'll, we'll say that. Um, so like reflecting as many people as possible, uh, like their opinions as possible. And what we saw in this uh, in this model was that we could manipulate the degree to which, like beginning, uh, like how how wide beliefs people had in the beginning, but like eventually, what happened in this model is like this this disinformer that's just like pounding away on something that's that's disingenuous and false, eventually actually drags by virtue um, the populist broadcaster over to itself, because eventually enough people will start believing in this. Uh, in this disinformation channel and because there's no critical voice to push against it and because this populist um, uh, channel is essentially just following what is most popular and what is what is commonly held in the population as the population slides towards the disinformer so slides the uh, the uh, the uh, the disinform the the populist news channel um, and you can think about it like in in the scenario that I described to you you can think about it as um like a news network that is committed to quote unquote fair and balanced or like whatever, like, so like saying something on both sides, because they kind of have to then reflect 
debate on both sides of the, the divide and the average of the population. So they would kind of have to say something to the mean of the population and how that interacts then with shifting uh, population dynamics given a disingenuous disinformer. Uh, we have other types of broadcasters as well. So we have a very sneaky disinformer, uh, one that I'm very proud of uh, that we sort of came up with. Um, and that's a disinforming broadcasting network that co-ops the mean of the population. So what that does, it initially, it, 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 it sits itself uh, at the mean of the population to gain credibility uh, with, with, the, with the electorate or with the citizenry. And then every step of the model, it moves 5% uh, towards a disinforming message that it wants to push eventually. Uh, so it's dragging the population with it. Um, and again, like combining that with a populist, uh, then you get, get essentially like two little ships that are sailing towards a disinformation uh, message. Because instead of like, like if we have like a disinformer that just starts way too, too extreme and just starts going like the moon is made of cheese, boom. Um, like it will find no audience because again, like people are, there's, there's too far away from, from what people believe. So we, we introduced this sneaky little disinformer. Um, in order to see if we could sort of lead like the shepherd leading uh, sort of the sheep kind of a thing without calling people sheep. Can that sneaky disinf disinformer only ever drag their population or drag the messaging 5% in incrementally in 5% steps? What counts as feasible? If they were to do a 20% jump, would they lose the population behind them and it wouldn't work? I'm talking about it. I mean, let's, let's anchor it in, a, in an example of, say, the BBC. The BBC is criticized for having moved too far left. It's also been criticized for having been having moved too far right um, by both sides. Both of them think of it as sort of the arbiter of what counts as reality, as articulated by mainstream British media. Um, but yeah, there's that, that that imperceptible shift one way or another. How far can a sneaky disinformer, not to call the BBC sneaky, but um, as, a, as an example, how far can it move one side or the other without losing everybody? Uh, I, I wouldn't call BBC a disinformer, obviously, but like, um, but the, in the model, it depends entirely on, um, like, in the model, it depends entirely on the cognitive structure. So, like, in our model, twenty percent would be too far. But again, that's in the context of an idealized citizen. So, it entirely depends on the psychological description that you put in. The next kind of step is to understand the psychology of the citizens in more detail, uh, above and beyond an abstracted idealized citizen. Once we get to a state where we have a better psychological description of the citizen, we have now a, a potential for introducing a media landscape and like various types of disinformation channels, uh, disinformation and misinformation from the bottom up as well as from the top down. That allows us fundamentally to stress test information systems. So it allows us a modeling tool to, in principle, figure out when and why our information systems are vulnerable to disinformation and who within the information system are vulnerable to disinformation, as well as the most effective ways of combating, combating that disinformation campaign. So this is not where we are yet, but like this is where I want to take this model in the next three to five years. Um, it's the fundamental idea. And it, this is taken from, incidentally, um, environmental and ecological sciences, where I've been doing some work on environmental sustainability where some of these same modeling principles are being used. Because if you think about like an environmental system, it's incredibly complex and interactive, like species eating other species, things migrating, uh, like environmental factors doing whatever they do to like species. Um, so in that, in that sort of ecological and environmental sciences, these kind of dynamic models to stress test uh, the fragilities of systems, ecosystems, 
are kind of commonplace. Um, but they've never really, to my mind at least, been applied with any degree of uh, psychological sophistication to this problem of disinformation. And this is exactly what we're trying to do, is to describe it as an ecosystem, uh, if you will, in the same way that uh, epidemiologists are describing um, the sort of spread of diseases, you can think of it as an infodemiology that we're sort of trying to figure out what the spread of misinformation does um, on a complex dynamic uh, system. And this is kind of where we want to take this. So so this is moving us exactly where I wanted us to go, but I guess just a little recap. Um, large networks have polarization built into them by the very nature of the connectivity that they supply. You drop a broadcaster in, a truthful broadcaster, and it has some impact, especially if that broadcaster or that educator, whatever you want to call, is brought in really early. It can yeah. have an impact on the virality of, 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 of thoughts if it's brought in early, if it's credible. Yeah. The, the earlier, point, the better. The earlier, the better. Um, populist broadcasters or sneaky broadcasters or straight, straightforwardly disin, disinforming broadcasters, <laughs> by which you mean actors of any kind, they can have an they have an they have an impact not just on the sectors of the network that they're touching, but actually across all of it because they will pull the ecosystem itself in their direction. Um, you say, I think, uh, elsewhere that um, especially when trust is low, um, populist broadcasters tend to do better. So we, that you can also look at media ecosystems um, from the perspective of the citizenry, not just from the perspective of the broadcasters or the networks itself. So when you're in an environment where there's real lack of trust amongst the citizenry, it turns out that certain kinds of media thrive, um, and those aren't necessarily the good ones. And that feels a little bit where we are today. Is that? Would you agree? Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. And and I think like, and don't get me uh, get me um, like don't get me wrong. Like um, we're sort of still in the infancy of this of this science of understanding these complex information systems. Um, so we need like much more research into like the psychology, the social connections, the structures of the networks and all of this. But exactly as you say, like one of the tests that we've been running is in low trust conditions where we manipulate the degree to which people have faith in each other and faith in, 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 in systems. Um, and once we lowered that threshold and lowered that perception, indeed, as you say, like po more polarized and extreme media started to do better. Um, and this is this is kind of just as a as a natural product of how those interactions shape out, how the manipulation of the or not manipulation, but like the impact and the influence of the various broadcasters have on the citizenry, and how that whole ecosystem then starts to vacillate and move and self organize. Uh, and like these vacillations are so critical, like to understand. And I think that's where the real fragilities come in, because like as you say, in a in a uh, world with low trust, it's easier to go in and like further a erode the trust of traditional news or like establishment uh, like figures like politicians or journalists or NGOs, um, which also then undercut the ability to fact check stuff. Um, so, um, Jens, this brings us very nicely into this last part that I want to ask you about, which is you've described a particular systemic architectural challenge with these social networks. You've taken it one step further and looked at the, again, architectural challenge of media ecosystems with broadcasters involved, which we mean newspapers, radio, politicians with loud loud voices. Um, and there is there's some systemic challenges. So what do we do about this? I mean, there's a couple of different things that I think would be beneficial. 
Um, and again, I'll stress that like in these components, it's not, it's not just a structure. It's also the citizens, the psychology of the citizens. And it's also like a political thing. So uh, like just as, as uh, four sort of solutions or four things that I might want to want to push um, like that speaks to each of these uh, various components. So on the one hand, there's a, there's a technical solution, uh, which we're already talking about right now, which is to flag misinformation. I think that's going to do very little, to be honest, because I think it depends on the credibility of the flagger, like whoever flags that. But like it's it's still worthwhile, and especially Twitter, um, Twitter tried to launch this thing and was 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 attacked roundly by all sides with this idea of yeah. releasing knowledge. Exactly, exactly. Um, like one more sophisticated way to sort of pseudo flag or sort of to at least think of things is to sort of um, maybe ask people why they believe something, or like instead of just making claims and like uh, avert statements, uh, say like a little argument for you, for why you think something is true. Um, or link to a paper or link to some source that you think or something. Um, but again, that that would kill a lot of social media and that that's never going to fly. Um, like a second thing that uh, technologically could be done is obviously to bury things uh, like deeper in the news feeds that are uh, flagged as potential disinformation or harmful information. But then again, then you come down to who decides what is harmful. And that's a really big challenge because like you can't have Mark Zuckerberg say, uh, decide that and a cadre within Facebook to decide what is and what is not good information to be receiving. Uh, so who gets to decide that is a really big thing that I think as a society we have to take very seriously um, and not just leave it to politicians because politicians will have a vested interest in a particular version of reality and not just leave it to technological companies and tech companies because they too will have a particular vested version of reality. But should be, there be some kind of arbitration sort of way of of deciding but like again we don't want to nitpick and we don't want to limit people's freedom of speech so it's a really really hard talent uh, uh, task but i think some of these uh, flagging mechanisms and like justification for what you're trying to argue within the social media might be a good thing um one thing that twitter has done um that i've seen is sometimes if you try to retweet something where it has a link to an article but you haven't clicked on that article uh, it very nicely says, uh, are you sure you want to retweet this without reading this first? And it invites <laughs> right. you to go in and read it, which is kind of nice because like, uh, so I heard about this and I, and I went in and I tried it and it, it, it does do it, which is kind of nice because like, it means that you can't at least just in a partisan kind of a way, just retweet something on the back of, uh, of some source sending it to you. Now on a citizen kind of a side, um, what uh, John and Sander at Cambridge are doing on inoculation projects and what uh, Sian Lewandowski and others are doing with debunking um, is, is superb work. And I think that's really needed as well. We need to, I think, educate ourselves and our citizens and our children as well to be critical consumers of, of information. I think that needs to be on the school, like, uh, like critical theory and critical reasoning, um, I think needs to be on the, on the, on the docket on the school's uh, curriculum. I think that would, be, uh, that would be a fantastic thing if we would take seriously, like, like evidential reasoning, logical argumentation, critical reasoning, and critical thinking. Um, like teach every kid how to draw a Bayesian network and describe to them like how evidential reasoning. You've got a lot of adults to teach first, but yeah, yes. I, oh, I know, I know. But like, like that, that would be fantastic if we could get educational programs around critical reasoning. And finally, like, and a bit more so, sort of like a, a as a fun pet theory of mine or pet suggestion of mine. So. Um, I would like uh, people who are running for official office to be held at the same 
standards of evidential reasoning as uh, companies who are trying to sell products. Because fundamentally, like politicians who are trying to run for official office, they're trying to sell themselves as, a, as an ideological product, as a society product, uh, that they can be used to sort of uh, cure ailments in the society, be it inequalities, discrimination, or whatever else is on the, on the agenda. Um, so I would like uh, for politicians to be held to the same account. This is not to say that they can't say anything, but like, uh, like if they have opinions about things, they can voice their opinions about anything. But if they're making references to factually based statements where that f- can be fact checked and, 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 and discerned to, the, to like some, uh, some degree of veracity, um, if that's found to be erroneous, then they should be asked to stop saying that on pain of paying fines, I think. So like the, the big debate, I think, for the 21st information, uh, like 21st century of information systems is how we structure that balance in a way that allows for all the uh, liberal democratic rights that we hold so dear without opening ourselves up to be incredibly vulnerable to disinformation attacks from malevolent sources. And there's no easy answer to that. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a, you've wrapped it for us beautifully. Um, this fundamental tension between uh, allowing for all the flowers to bloom and making sure that precisely as a result of these kind of architectural features of our media ecosystem that your models so beautifully describe, we are also protected from um, from the worst of those. Thank you so much for walking us through these amazing experiments in such a clear um, and engaging way. That was fascinating. My absolute pleasure. And thanks so much for having me. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.